0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Bruce. Each week, we bring you the best news, views, and interviews with the CEOs, leaders, and clinicians who are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. I am a founder and CEO of a health tech company myself called PocDoc. We are allowing anyone to test themselves for major diseases through their phone. Um, regular listeners know, know all about that. Um, before we start, as always, I'd like to thank everyone who's listening live on UK Health Radio. Hello, welcome. Um, And thank you very much and welcome to anyone listening across the podcast platforms. So Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, Um, just search for Health Tech Hour, look for my happy smiling face. Um, There are other other health tech things around, but just feel free to ignore them. Uh, Thanks also to Zero Zero Zilch Zip, Um, that's Zero Zilch Zip, as I can get my words out, which is the UK's leading online um, alcohol-free drinks retailer which is um, zerozilchzip.co.uk. Um, we will do my drink of a week, my non-alcoholic drink of a week review. We're still working on the title of that segment. It's a bit clunky, um, but we're going to do that after we introduce today's guest. So if, if you're looking for something a bit different um, in terms of a drink, they do great variety boxes, beers, ciders, wines, fizz, and, and spirits. They've actually sent me some. I've had some, which is where all my weekly drinks come from. So I can totally recommend them. Basically, if you know whether you're you want to give up alcohol for a particular reason or whether you just want to choose something different, it's a lot more interesting than water. They taste really good. So go go check it out. Zerozilgzip.co.uk. Um and actually from what I know, alcohol consumption may be related to the area that we are talking to our guest about today. Um, because today's show. Is our first show focused on fertility. We've not looked at fertility before, so it's great, to, it's great to be able to do it. So today we have Tess Isabel Kossad on the show, who's the CEO and founder of BEA Fertility. That's B-E-A Fertility. Bayer are developing the world's first, and I'm, I've written this in capital so I get this right, intracervical insemination kit for home use, which has been hailed by, by tons of people um, in the media and also clinicians as potentially transforming fertility treatment across the board, which is obviously a huge statement and super exciting. So um, I'm sure that lots of people listening have had fertility journeys themselves. I know that my wife and I did. You know, it, it can be quite a bumpy path, um, you know, and, and so I think it's it's we always like having these topics on the show because we'd like to try and unpick them and destigmatize them and also, you know, because they are so universal. So it, it, it's great to, great to have Tess on. Tess is also a huge advocate of open and transparent debate around fertility and sexual health and has led a number of businesses across the world uh, before founding Bayer. So Tess, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm well, thank you. That was quite the intro. I found myself nodding along to all of those things that you were saying, thinking that's so true. I realised you're introducing
0: Baya. So, <laughs> well, I'm I'm pleased that it was that way around and not, you know, like oh my goodness, no, he's got this all wrong. We're not even, <laughs> we don't even, we're not even doing fertility. So, um, on the topic of, of non-alcoholic drinks, what are your thoughts about non-alcoholic drinks, and and, and what does the con- what it is alcohol related to fertility in any way, shape, or form?
1: Yeah, so the guidance on alcohol and fertility is obviously for anyone trying to conceive. There's no strict guidance around cutting out alcohol, but something for people on the journey, they always sort of try to consume in moderation. Um, personally, I think alcoholic uh, alcohol-free, sorry, of the yeah. alcohol-free drinks are a great idea. There's some um, a number of evenings where you go home and you think, God, I just want something fancier than. A glass of water, a cup of tea. And, yeah. um, you know, I think it fits the bill in a really cool way. So I'm, I'm yeah. very pro.
0: Yeah. And um, I, I agree. It's sort of like I, I quite like the idea of getting to the end of the week and just yeah. popping open a bottle of, of something. So um, actually, seeing as the weather so we're, we're going on to my catchily titled non-alcoholic drink of the week review um, now, which is it, this weekend was very, very sunny. So we actually popped open a bottle of the ALT sparkling rosé. Mm-hmm. which I was concerned about because I don't, you know, I'm still sort of moving through this area of t- trying all these different things. So I thought a sparkling rosé might not really work, but actually myself and my wife cracked it open and it was it was great. Um, it tastes exactly like normal rosé fizz does. Um, it's got that kind of sweetness, but also the acidity and that kind of like bitter wine type of flavour. So we were very impressed. That's
1: interesting. So it sounds go. great.
0: As the weather's warming up, ALT sparkling rosé just head to zeriswap.co.uk and and you can get that and more. So and also we put a photo out on the social so you know what we're so we know what we're talking about. But let's get to the topic of the show. So Tess, thank you very much for coming on. Um as we talked about before in our pre-show call we um, we kind of split the show up into three bits. The first bit is sort of an origins around how you came to be doing all of the awesome stuff that you're doing. The middle bit is sort of all of the incredible stuff that you're doing, and then the final bit is more around how you stay on your mission and and, and advice and, and what the future might hold for Bayer. So, um, why don't we start with just? I think it's, we I always like to ask kind of stupid questions on the show, more just so that we all get on the same page. But go for it. What is how would you define fertility? it's a term as lots of terms get thrown around and like what does it mean and what is it and what is what is it not yeah
1: that's a great question um so i think we often confuse quite a lot of terms in this world um we i mean the whole fertility sector call themselves fertility but actually when you look at a clinic what they're addressing is infertility so let's start right there that we are uh, putting a bit of a positive spin on something but in actual fact in doing that using the wrong word for an entire sector of of medical treatment which kind of blows my mind a little bit um
2: yeah they kind of
1: what you
0: mean they they sort of inverted it
1: well it's called the fertility sector but the only The people who are sort of in the fertility clinic are those who are historically struggling with infertility, but right. to be able to sort of keep it light, posi- to keep it positive, I guess, which okay. is absolutely fair enough. You know, it's yeah. a hard enough journey as is. Um, mm-hmm. But it's again, you mentioned, Steve, sort of stigma and, and shame. I think it, we shy away from stigma and shame. And so we call it fertility as opposed right. to infertility um, and sort of avoid labeling the journey.
0: Sure.
1: Rightly or wrongly. But I think what is fertility? It's a great question. There's if we back it up and think about it from sort of language and scientific perspective, there's fertility, which is um, it's sort of our ability to, to reproduce fertility rates, usually birth per woman uh, okay. sort of globally. And then there's fecundity, which is uh, the ability to reproduce. And we don't talk so much about fecundity. We mostly just sort of put the label f- fertility over over everything. But really, in terms of fertility, I suppose the way I would sum it up, bear in mind, there are many, many ways of talking about this and defining it. But the way that I would sum it up is um, a sort of human's ability to conceive.
0: Right.
1: And um, that sort of that, that blankets many, many things, particularly today, I think, with you know, not every family gets their start in the same way. Some families start in the clinic, some families, you know, we all start in different ways. All of our families yeah. look different. And, it, you know, I think that fertility sort of blankets all of that in a really nice way and, and opens up an ability to start talking about our fertility. We've got to, we've yeah. got to start talking about how we, how we create our families. Cause it's, it's only getting harder so it's time yeah. to start removing well, we're, gonna, that shame. we're gonna
0: we're gonna come on to the global fertility crisis I did <laughs> we, I've, I've been doing my research so I've got some questions around that which is I mean to be honest with you one of the reasons I love doing the show is because I just I like learning about new things and it wasn't an area that I'd previously really you know other than my own personal journey and my wife's personal journey it wasn't something that I'd sort of looked at at a global scale but it, there is there's some important stuff happening, I would say, on a global level. So, um, but but let's go back to back to you and your sort of journey. So I know that that um, we um, we spoke before about how you sort of were running a number of companies and then you moved across into health technology. But you also took a degree in science and health related issues as a master's. I think didn't you?
1: So I did my master's at Imperial. Um, it was an MSc because Imperial loves. Uh, loves the science, but actually it was in marketing strategy so i'm mm-hmm. commercial I think when I first went to university I was desperate to study astrophysics um, right. and I was on the astrophysics program at Exeter and it was sort of what I wanted to be and then a yeah. couple of terms in I thought, do you know what and this is really I think my first experience of embracing just not being good enough um, okay. and failing at something so I really you know I got a term in and I thought god you know i can' i can't do this um i can't do this and i sort of sat back and i thought why am i pushing myself to continue doing this you know i'm struggling with the math i'm not gonna be a professor and i went through all of these reasons and i thought nah you know i i'm just gonna accept the fact that i can't do this and there's, you know i'm just gonna change course in life and course correct and try and do something i prefer so i actually went into the business school into marketing and uh, that's where i found my feet
0: okay I mean, that's quite a shift. I suspect
2: yeah, it was a big shift, a <laughs> I mean, culture not, change.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's not like okay. I, I'm not so keen on the maths in astrophysics, so I will sort of downgrade to biology. It's like, it's like okay, I'm gonna, I'm really, I'm really moving at quite a quite distance there.
1: I, don't, I remember someone on the course said that I was going to the dark side, and. Uh, I mean, from the yeah. physics department, sure. That's, yeah. I guess that's what they thought. But um, yeah, it was one of the, the best decisions, I think. It was tough. I really, you know, I really wanted to stick with it. But um, yeah, had okay. to just embrace and,
0: it. And then after university, you, you moved. Well, you, I know that you worked, I think you worked in a number of different sort of marketing type roles and agencies running them and things like that. And so like, what was that journey like? And what were the lessons that you sort of learned during that journey that that, that, that stay with you?
1: Yeah, it was a really interesting journey. I think for me, I grew up, and this is this is probably going to sound a little bit odd, but I grew up sort of dreaming of the corporate life. I thought, you know what, I want to wear a suit, I want to fly, and I want one of those little badges with my photograph on it that I can scan okay. in when I go to the office. I really wanted to, that was sort of my vision for what success was like. And, okay. um in Imperial, they sort of encourage you to apply to McKinsey, Bain, BCG, sort of all the big okay. consultancies. And lo and behold, similar to the lesson I learned in astrophysics, I wasn't getting into any of these companies. And, yeah. um, and it was such an interesting lesson for me because I thought, well, this is the, the gateway to the, the career that I really thought I wanted. The gates kind of shut one after the other, and I was left thinking, what do I do? And um, at the time, as a part of our master's degree, we created this, corp- this 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 startup, basically, as a project. And the startup was all about uh, creating affordable marketing systems through loyalty cards for small independent businesses. So okay. this is a little bit the beginning of the theme of my career, which is sort of access um you know the term democratizing but making sure that everyone has access to to the things that they need and the guys that I was working with on this they all got into the McKinsey's of the world and so they all went off
0: I'm sure that I'm sure they've had a terrible time
1: they're doing all right (laughs)
0: okay anyway anyway anyway. they're doing
1: all right yeah I mean I I prefer the route that I ended up being put on but um, I
0: mean just on that like I'd be joking aside do you do you do you sort of believe that it was the it, it it um what's the word it was sort of it was the right thing in the end yeah, in effect
1: absolutely I think okay. I'd have found my way into what I was doing eventually mm-hmm. um, you know and who knows maybe had I spent five years in a McKinsey type business this particular journey would have been easier because I think particularly in the investment community they do borrow a lot of credibility from that they yes. do put a lot of story you know they put a lot in there's a lot like of found,
0: there's a lot of founders there's a lot of founders in bcs and stuff like that that have come over from those big strategic strat yeah. consulting places yeah yeah, yeah. I can, a and, and
1: it really is and i think it, it is a well-trodden path for very good reason but not every good founder we've seen has come through mckinsey so I think, you know, had I gone down that path, I'd have found my way to where I am eventually. It just so happens that I ended up on this path.
0: And, and, um, and like, and like how, when you, you know, those kind of rejections or like those not getting into those places, like how, how were you, was it like, because sometimes things can happen where you like, you really, really want it and it doesn't come through and it really knocks you. But actually like sometimes you don't get something. And you're like, do you know what? Actually, maybe it's not the end of the world sort of thing like which kind of one were you in
1: uh, so I think to begin with I was certainly in the former
0: but thought, <laughs> hey there, At
1: least you're this, I'm not gonna lie yeah oh I'm not gonna lie about it. I was crushed um, okay. I was completely devastated by this but I think it, then you look back and it didn't take very long before I looked back and I thought actually this really is for the best um, and I was sort of on a just a completely different pathway completely different journey I was exposed to so much stuff, um, so much variety uh, across my career. I think I've, I feel very lucky, very, very lucky.
0: And um, at what point does healthcare, health technology, w- w- was it healthcare and health technology first or was it fertility first? Or like at what point does that start to come into your life? And, you know, because e- e- w- when that starts to come in, you're still a long way away from starting a business. And yeah. so like, what, w- when does that start to happen?
1: Yeah, so for me, the health uh crept in. Probably a couple of years into my career, I was running an ad agency. Uh, we worked with a couple of medical device companies, and I just thought the whole world was the, the whole medical world and health world. And you look at the trends, and you look at where people just want to live. They not only do they want to live longer, but they want to live better for longer. Mm-hmm. And this whole sector is is the way that it was just so buoyant. I think I was I was always fascinated by it. You know, I was in B two B marketing, so heavy technology. So we were working with satellite launches, uh, remote offshore oil and gas inspection, you name it. I was responsible for positioning and marketing all sorts of technologies that are pivotal to your life, but you'll have never heard of them. (laughs) They're really kind of unmarketable concepts. But after a while, I thought, time for something new. Um, It's time to get out. And so (laughs) time to get out. I got out and I stepped in as the VP marketing as a contractor with a remote offshore oil and gas platform inspection company so <laughs>
0: okay okay i imagine they have a huge instagram presence huge <laughs> uh
1: huge following my mom yeah. my dad no. yeah. i mean yes and no yeah okay no. um great company though so i start i started freelancing as a uh, sort of chief marketing officer I guess going into young companies and 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 setting up the brand and the positioning and, and how we talk about what we're up to and and I learned a lot for that I traveled a lot I spent a couple of years on the road really seeing the world and and I started working with uh, I started working with a guy called Cam who uh, taught strategy to pharmaceutical executives uh, mm-hmm. using a program that uh that goes actually if you've done an mba at wharton you'll have gone through this program so we started teaching with that and that was we worked with a couple of big european pharmaceuticals and that was really the beginning of my introduction to the medical device world and i was hooked
0: completely hooked okay yeah what were the first thing like the first devices what were they do you remember
1: um, so we were working with, we were teaching exec ed programs, so looking at drug discovery and delivery for psoriasis and eczema, there was oh, wow, some cardiac okay. drugs, there was some sort of big pharmaceutical drugs, and then obviously it was one of the companies was Sanofi Genzyme, so we were looking at okay. vaccinations, vaccine rollouts, and the more I got into this from a bird's eye view, just sort of speaking to these companies, the more I thought, this is the most incredible sector, how do I contribute? How
0: do, how do I, do weigh I get in? in? Like, where's my, yeah, where's my in?
1: Yeah. How do I make okay. a difference here? I, I want in.
0: Cool. And then how did you end up with fertility? Or how, how does, how does Bea start to, to come about? Bea, Bea? Yeah,
1: Bea, yeah. So Bea came about, I met uh, David, who was an embryologist on mm. Harley Street. And David had an idea for a new step in the treatment pathway. And we met in late 2019, we got talking and that was truly the beginning of, of Fea. That was really how it all began and, and where, where I came into this and where it got started.
0: Cool. Well, we have to, we're going to take a little two minute break right now because my producer wants to do commercial breaks and then we will be back after two minutes and we'll get right. Cause I think that's a good place to stop. And then we can just get straight into Bayer as of twenty nineteen and um yeah I think it'd be super interesting. Anyway, we will that be right back great. after this short break.
2: UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself on the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% using the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk because nothing's better. station
0: that makes you feel good hi and welcome back to this week's health Tech hour with me Steve Bruce, and Tess, Tess Isabel Cosad from um, Bay fertility CEO and founder of Bay fertility so just before the break we were we got to the point where you had sort of you, you you'd met your co-founder and what was the problem that, that you were trying to solve but what, what, what at that beginning, you know, the first few meetings, like, w- w- you know, what was the problem that you were really trying to focus on? Cause obviously I'm guessing you, there was a problem to begin with and then you tried to work, you sort of develop the product out of it, but I don't know. What, yeah.
1: Yeah. So when I met David, he, he'd actually been working on it for sort of working on the idea noodling away at this problem for quite a while. Uh, he had a concept, he sort of had a, a prototype device and I was I was hooked from the very beginning. I think particularly as I began to look into the sector, the problem became really abundantly obvious, which is clinical fertility care is not accessible. You know, if you look at the numbers of uh, cycles of IVF performed globally and you do the, map, the napkin math on the number of people experiencing infertility, you get to about Maybe 3% of people who need clinical care are getting okay. it. And that's okay. generous. I wow. just saw a founder pitch a couple of weeks ago who said 1%. Wow. So
2: it's
1: it, this whole world of of medicine really fascinated me because as well when we talk about fertility, it's not it's not cardiology, neurology, it, it, it's not life or death medicine. You know, you, you go into a clinic, if it doesn't work, you walk out on your in two legs, you're, you're heartbroken, you're grieving. But yeah. you're alive and i think what that's done is open up the fertility sector to a little bit less regulation or maybe more inconsistent regulation it's okay. opened it up to private equity investment you know and, and also fertility is this sort of moral hotbed yeah i think the pope weighed in in the 50s the pope you don't have okay. the pope weighing in in cardiology in the 50s but in fertility yeah,
0: yeah. Pope's gay. not that pope's not that worried about people's cholesterol levels
1: Oh, right he, hes he should not... be
0: he should be, but he's not that's fine but
1: no, he's definitely. not making comments on how you manage your cholesterol, but he definitely was making comments on on yeah. on the People's fertility
0: ability journey. to conceive um, exactly. okay, yeah, and so just to go back to this one percent thing, just so I understand yeah. what you mean that is that is to say of all the people that have um pot- potential or or infertility or diagnosed infertility or problems conceiving. Correct. 1% of them are getting care for that or 3% between 1 and Correct.
1: 3%. Correct. That's not
0: very that's a very low number.
1: No. Now imagine it you know imagine if the same figures were true for oncology for example. It, yeah. We completely uproar. You know people are dying because they can't afford care. Complete yeah. uproar. Although I say this, I mean you look at what's going on in the US but parking the lab, point still stands. The point still stands, you know, and the other thing that you look at in fertility is the global IVF success rate kind of plateaued about two decades ago, maybe. Um, And there's been hundreds of millions, billions of investment dollars into innovation in the in the fertility labs. And yet the efficacy rate hasn't moved the dial on efficacy. You know, anyone looking at another sector of, of medicine would look at that and go, huh. there's there's something going on here and and we don't do that with fertility and i sat back and i thought why
0: yeah
1: why why aren't we questioning why aren't we pushing why aren't we doing a better job because surely one of the most important things we can do as humans is is bring healthy humans into the world
0: yeah why else are we here well yeah and i mean um so we'll get to the fertility crisis. I was going to ask, but I was going to jump ahead. But, but um, okay. So the the problem basically that you and David sort of threshed out was that 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 um, ultimately there is a you know ninety ninety seven to ninety nine percent of people aren't having care that should have care in the fertility space, yeah. and the success rate of 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 clinical treatment, which I'm guessing is what you mean by I, is, IV, is IVF, IVF. treatment. IVF is that what that correct means? right yeah is is plateaued and and therefore that means that it's not getting any better and it's sort of despite however much money is being invested it's not improving and so you've got like a huge demand that can't really be met by the existing set of treatments right
1: exactly and technologies that funnel you know all of these these programs and and funneling people into the clinical world is not always the right thing it's not right. always what we need right. to be focusing on. We okay. need care at home. You know, mm-hmm. everyone, a, at some point when you yeah. decide that you're going to start your family, for the majority of families, that journey starts at home. But if you look at the home care market, it's nothing. There's
0: nothing. Okay. What, does, yeah. what, what was there before what you guys are doing, so to speak? or what If you're not, actually, let's go on to what you guys are doing because then we can ask that question. So, like, okay. what is... What is Bayer doing with this intracervical um, insemination kit? And how did you end up with that as the the the, um, the product or solution?
1: Yeah, good question. I also realized that this is radio, but I talk with my hands, so. No, it's okay. You're also talk-
0: you're also talking with your voice, so it's absolutely fine.
1: <laughs> uh, so intracervical insemination is an old clinical treatment. So if okay. you went in for clinical fertility care anytime up until about the mid seventies. ICI, intra-cervical insemination, would have been sort of one of the main options on the menu, okay. and it is effectively holding semen at the en- at the cervix for an extended okay. amount of time. And what right. that means is, if you hold semen at the cervix, you increase the, the probability that a few of them will make it through the cervical os and into the uterus to, to to carry on the sperm journey and fertilize an egg. Sure. So, in around the mid '70s, uh, IVF came along. As well as IVF, the advancements around that created a new treatment called IUI, which is intrauterine
0: insemination,
1: which involves passing the cervix and placing a catheter into the uterus and putting sperm
0: directly around it. Exactly.
1: exactly So, the minute you're putting washed semen in the uterus, you need a processing lab to be able to wash the semen. You need Mm -hmm. a theater to be able to put the catheter
0: in. It's a a surgical. it's a surgical procedure, right?
1: It is. It is. And it's a lot more invasive, but it's also a lot more profitable for the clinic.
0: Um,
1: and so at the oh, time the okay. 70s. Interesting.
0: Okay. Right.
1: So IUI, it, it is a little more effective than ICI. And so what it did was replace ICI as the gateway clinical treatment. So when you okay. go to a fertility clinic, you will be offered IUI. It is globally the most popular fertility treatment. And usually and that, people do rounds of that before IVF. And
0: is that because it's cheaper or because it's more effective or because it's just what people start with? Or like, wh- it, why, why, does, why does that happen?
1: Good question. It is. It's definitely cheaper. So in London, okay. a round of IUI, you're looking at anywhere between 800 to 1800 pounds around okay. uh, of IVF. You're obviously looking at around uh, three to five thousand pounds for a single cycle. Okay. And that's before they add on a lot of the medications, the consultation okay. fees. So there's a lot of sort of hidden stuff in there that you, mm. you pay as you go. Right. Um, so usually they offer IUI first okay. um, and then you move on to IVF depending on the success or, or not of the okay. IUI cycles. So okay. it, up until the 70s, you go to a clinic, you get ICI in, in one of many variations. ICI kind of fell off the menu of available clinical treatment options around that time, around the mid-70s. And then it went dormant and... Um, it just
0: it, went dormant, like it just, it, like, it just, it just, no... Yeah. Okay. Right. So
1: there are a couple of clinics in the Nordics that offer ICI as a more sort of natural and holistic means of conceiving, a less invasive non-
0: Yeah, less invasive, non- less clinical, less sort of surgical
1: exactly but no so you you really aren't going to find ICI offered in the clinic anymore but it is so simple Steve honestly it is semen in some form of cap that is placed against the cervix and held there for an extended amount of time and Uh, is it
0: is it really that because I'm really interested as to why that would drop drop off the menu so to speak and is is it is it why was that was it purely a kind of unfortunately like a sort of financial thing we can we can make more money with these other options or was there a efficacy trade-off or like I'm just interested because it seems kind of crazy that like it would just go so I don't know I'm a- not an, I'm not an expert so I don't know maybe, oh, yeah. it,
1: it was insane to me when, when I first discovered this I thought no there's there's no way there's no way this is possible but I you know, at this point, honestly, this is pure conjecture. There's no data on this. There's no sure, paper. I'm not citing anything here other than no, no. my own opinion. Yeah. But if you, if you look at the business models of clinics, if you look at the, the, the model of the sector, I'm going to go ahead and say that, and again, my opinion only. Opinion of one. <laughs> opinion of one, data point one. Yeah. But I'm going to go ahead and say that it's, it's really not the most profitable treatment option because you've got a physician placing a cap, sperm in a cap into a patient, right. into a female patient and uh she's been waiting around with cap in place for the physician to come back and, and remove it at the end of treatment yeah. iui you go in you have your iui you walk out right um you recover you walk out and it's you know five times yeah. the, the the price so right. i think it's
0: well i mean also there's maybe there's an element of like chasing the shiny thing a little bit right for sort sure of like, and you know
1: the other thing You've got to also, you know, IUI is a couple of percentage points more effective than ICI okay. um, across multiple cycles. You've okay. got to remember that there are, you know, when people are trying to start their families, they're really, really desperate. A lot of people will do anything for another 1% chance. So if you right. tell them, hey, this treatment over here is, you know, 3% more, it's shown to be 3% more effective, it'll cost this. You right. often take Going for it, so there is right. an uplift on efficacy. Now, in twenty fifteen, there was a Cochrane mm-hmm. review published, and the Cochrane review said that there is no, there is insufficient evidence. And now, you've got to remember that Cochrane reviews often come forward with the opinion that there is insufficient evidence. This okay. is sort of their
0: That's purview. What but they say, yeah.
1: In in this case, there is insufficient evidence to suggest that IUI. Is any more effective than ICI. Wow. And if you look at the data over multiple treatment cycles, there are percentage points difference. IUI is a little bit more effective, but it, it does not merit the uplift and in invasiveness, yeah. cost, and emotional burden that it puts people through when they're starting this family
0: building and, journey. And I'm guessing, you know, without wishing to put the cart before the horse, but that 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 um, ICI. is is something that could be done outside of a clinical setting, potentially. The cart is now before the horse, (laughs) but you are absolutely
1: right. Um, ICI is simple enough to be done at home. And the beauty of ICI is that it is our starting point into this world, but what we see as a company is the potential to create an entirely new category in this market of home fertility care. Mm -hmm. Right now, you've got clinical care, but every family really starts their journey at home. Why aren't we building better products and services for the beginnings of the journey? You know, for the first six to eight months of that journey, for the first year of that journey. Mm. GPs just tell you to go home and try. Yeah. <laughs> try for 12 months. Well, that doesn't work for everyone, you know? And that's, yeah. not, that's not helpful when you're desperate and you've got no idea what's going on. I, you know, I, a lot of the health sort of techie people, I can look at my watch and tell you, what my heart rate is and whether I'm stressed or not, but I can try intercourse unprotected for a year not get pregnant. And someone will turn around to me and say, unexplained infertility. I'm sorry. When I went to school, I was told if I stood next to a boy, I'd get pregnant. Why is it that I'm 30? No one has updated the education model here. I've been trying for a year and it's not happening. And people are vulnerable and confused and lonely and desperate,
0: really desperate. And is it that there's a lack of, is it a lack of biological information about the, the, what could be preventing them from becoming pregnant? Or is it more of a wider thing around just the entire journey that you think is the, the that is lacking for, for sort of this, I guess it's the, is it the period between when you start trying and, you know, ultimately, if you've done it for so long, you end up in the clinical pathway, right? That bit in the, that, that, that bit.
1: That piece in the middle is a chasm. And it is full of misinformation. It's full of good information. It's Mm. also full of misinformation. You know, you can burn sage, meditate, and drink all of the teas you want. None of those things are going to get you pregnant. They'll support you as you do, maybe, if there's evidence. But they won't all get you pregnant. And we've, you know, what occurred to me is that we've got to start creating a valid concept for home-based fertility care that is Mm -hmm. safe, regulated evidence-based and actually supports people earlier in the journey than when they need to be put into a fertility clinic because fertility clinics are not expanding fast enough they cannot keep up with demand so funneling more people onto a clinical wait list is not the solution and and when you
0: say that they can't meet demand is that both on the nhs side and also privately both both
1: both a lot of private clinics do have long wait lists for treatment, particularly after the pandemic, when clinics shut for a few months, you know, in the NHS, you can't get, you really, the the eligibility criteria in the NHS for IVF are so tight and they're tightening all the time, all the time. I think only 12% of CCGs in the NHS actually offer the nice guideline recommended level of care for IVF Um, restrictions, such as postcode, BMI cannot have any pre-existing children, so secondary infertility huge wow. problem, and it's not addressed at all on the NHS. We're just wow. There's no care for this, but it's right. one of the most important phases of well, people's well, life. And
0: also, it's it's a really tricky subject, I imagine, for the NHS yeah. to try and deal with. But it obviously creates a huge amount of distress, stress, anxiety, you know, yeah. all kinds of other issues, and so. Yeah, it seems like there's, there's a gap, right? And, and, and it can't be that people have to go from zero to IVF at a private clinic where they're gonna be on a wait list anyway. Like a lot, with a lot of other conditions, there's a huge amount that you can do at home, you know? Um, so I, yeah. And so what, what, is ha- like, what is happening in the home-based fertility care sector at the moment? Like how would you kind of explain it? Like what, what is there, what can people get? What's yeah, before? so
1: we're, we're seeing a lot of activity. It, I, it, you know, I think rising tide floats all boats. I'm super supportive of all of the money and innovation and, and, and all of the activity going on in the sector. I think it's mm. incredible to see, particularly in fertility. I think what we're seeing a lot of is uh, apps and digital sort of physician-led digital health experiences that you can use on your journey to, to conceive. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of ovulation tests. Obviously, we know that ovulation and timing thereof is critical to to conception. And so we're seeing a lot of of ovulation uh, tracking devices and services, whether it is um, midstream urine tests whether it is basal body temperature, so uh, natural cycles with the thermometer, whether yeah. it is menstrual cycle tracking and, and sort of estimation of ovulation based on menstrual cycles. But we're seeing a lot of, of, of development and a lot of activity in the digital health space in the right. fertility sector.
0: And would you, with your, uh, with, with, with what you're developing, because you have, you, you have this, your sort of, I guess, intracervical, into the ICI device, um as well as this sort of holistic ecosystem i think that you're building and so what's been the reaction from clinicians patients users research groups like to what you guys are doing either is the device or this sort of wider piece
1: enormously positive Uh, we've had we've been so well received there are consultants on the nhs who say that this has the power to be transformative uh, right. patients we've done a lot of user research and we've had people come in and use the device and it, it, you know on a, on a medical model in a simulated environment and the feedback and the pull we get from the market is people really want this and I think there's you know I was reading something the other day um, and actually it was an article on digital transformation but I'm going to take okay. out I'm going to be self-serving and strip out word right. digital yeah <laughs> for a second. The
0: transformation yeah
1: Um, and what it said was transformation is a process that makes what was once scarce abundant Mm -hmm. and I love that because I think if you look at there are advancements in medicines you know advancements that really push the boundaries of efficacy and and improve the science and then there are transformations and the transformations are what bring the advancements home and Mm -hmm. for us into the home and it's that's really what
0: we're trying to do here and is it that someone would use this instead of would they sort of self-select to use this product or would they be prescribed it or like how would it how how would it sort of fit into the existing pathways for fertility yeah
1: it's a new step in the treatment pathway so it's people would self-select but it's direct to consumer so you don't need a prescription and it's it's really a (laughs) The first step in the treatment pathway, before you do IUI, right. you, you should really do a, a, try a couple of cycles of ICI, three to six cycles. We okay. know that the efficacy data is good. And then mm-hmm. if that hasn't worked after six cycles, then you go into IUI, then you go into IVF. And obviously there's the whole piece of diagnostics. So yeah. maybe there's azoospermia, maybe there's a blocked fallopian tube, maybe there's all sorts of things going on. But in the cases of unexplained infertility, Mm -hmm. This is really the the perfect intervention, the perfect preclinical, safe, effective intervention that you should really try.
0: And so, with unexplained fertility, unexplained infertility, is that where you're you're not getting you're not getting pregnant, you're not conceiving, but there's no sort of diagnosable reason, like there's no block fallopian tube, the sperm counts fine, it's just not happening
1: it's just not happening and that is the most painful type of infertility
0: yeah and how how common is that type of infertility in general it's a, it's a, a like, third
1: a third, oh, wow. a third a third so a third oh, wow. female factor a third male factor and a third unexplained so we often think of fertility wow. as a women's health issue uh, i was at a conference yeah. called the, the women's health innovation summit and there was a lot of fertility stuff there and and actually fertility is a human health issue because it's a third man a third woman and a third
0: unexplained we just don't know and is it and is it still is it always been a third a third a third and so the kind of no one's really ever dug into this unexplained bit and really come up with anything or or is is that third is shrinking right as we find out more stuff
1: you again you would like to think so Yeah, as we pour in billions of dollars of research into this you really would like to think so but it remains steadfastly a third a third a third wow yeah
0: that's really interesting
1: (laughs) it's great it's really
0: interesting yeah um so we're going to stop for our final commercial break and then when we come back i want to talk about the global fertility crisis because I actually think that we should discuss it. It's Super interesting, and I nothing think like ending on a high. there, Steve. well, no. Well, we're gonna. We've got twenty minutes left, so we'll do that to begin with, and then we'll we'll bring it back with the motivational factors around hey, stay on your mission, and what's the future of bear fertility? It's not my That's first time doing this, Tess. So, you know, don't worry about it. we'll be back in two minutes after this break. Thanks for listening.
2: UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself on the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health radio listeners can save 5% using the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk because nothing's better. The station that makes you feel good. Good, good.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with uh, myself, Steve Roost, and Tess Isabel-Cossad, the CEO and founder of Bayer Fertility. So, before the break, we were learning all about... All of the amazing stuff that Bear's doing, not just with the intracervical um, insemination device, which which actually, why are we talking about it? What roughly is the success rate of, of intracervical insemination generally versus the other things? Just because so, I don't, I'm not sure about how it all sort of stacks up.
1: Yeah, so if you, the, the data varies depending on the paper that you're looking at, but generally yeah. speaking, over three cycles of ICI, you're looking at efficacy rates anywhere around 30, 30%. um IUI a little higher than that and over six treatment cycles you're looking at efficacy rates of up closer to 50 percent across six cycles for ICI and IUI again a couple percentage points higher okay obviously that varies with age group and there are a lot of factors there but broadly speaking that's
0: what we're looking at wow okay and um how does that compare to IVF which is obviously a massive massively more expensive invasive complicated complex procedure but just or, you know, as a kind of benchmark.
1: Yeah. So get this. The global efficacy rate for IVF is anywhere between 25 and 35%, depending on the data set wow. you're looking at. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's, yeah. so that, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that puts it into context.
1: Now, that's for a single cycle of IVF.
0: So that okay. so was okay. sort of a, a okay. little bit
1: unfair. If you were right. to go over three to six cycles of IVF, you would obviously see much higher, much higher efficacy for that, but it doesn't track too far over that of IUI. Right. And uh, you know, it varies per clinic, which is why clinics are are clinics are always keen to ensure that IVF is performed on those who are most likely to conceive because it contributes There's to their, their ability to say we have an efficacy of X percent.
0: And I guess this plays into like it's not necessarily deregulated right but it's sort of there's an element where it's been private and privatized for such a long period of time that you know there's some things happening like there you go like people juicing their customer base so to make sure that they're you know putting through the most likely people to succeed so that it makes their numbers look good which is totally fine because they're private businesses in one sense but actually I don't know if that's necessarily completely kosher in another sense.
1: Uh, yeah, you're right. So it's a bit of a fine line. You know, I think, again, like you say, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head in terms of the issue here is they are privatized businesses. You, you were looking in the sector, a lot of private equity involvement in yeah. the the purchase and consolidation of fertility clinics into sort of fertility clinical groups. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of M&A in the space. We're seeing a lot of interest from the financial sector and in a medical sector that is already inconsistently regulated and legislated, the yeah. involvement of private equity?
0: I'm nervous. Yeah, I mean, that's not. I mean, traditionally, <laughs> historically, um, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily end up, you know, being that great for patients potentially. Um, okay, so let's quickly touch on the global fertility crisis because we talked about it. So, what is it and why is it a problem?
1: So we call it the global fertility crisis. Louise, our chief medical officer, wrote this piece about it and sort of coined the term. And I thought it was brilliant. I mean, it's it's dark, but it's brilliant. But what it is, is really it's it's only getting harder to start our families. And if you look, there are hormone conditions uh, that are that are sort of being diagnosed at an unprecedented rate. So uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome is now at 21% of women. That's the leading cause of infertility. PCOS,
0: PCOS is, is at 21% now. Wow.
1: PCOS yeah. is at 21%. Endometriosis. That's huge. One in 10. Yeah. So we are diagnosing wow. hormone related and in particular estrogen related conditions at an unprecedented rate.
0: Unprecedented. Is that because of, is that because of the kind of ubiquity of the birth of, of the pill or is it unrelated or it could be related but we don't really know?
1: We don't know. You know, so on the on the male side, there's a 25% decline in testosterone. There's data to suggest that sperm counts have declined 59% in the last 50 years.
0: Wow.
1: Um, yeah, erectile dysfunction is up 110%. In, right. in the next couple of years, it's going to be affecting more than 325 million men. So on the female side, on the male side, if you take the hormone, sort of the hormonal conditions that we're seeing being diagnosed, more and more frequently, with the fact that people are starting their families you know later and later in life, I think yeah. the average age of a first time mother is now over thirty in the u s and the u k for sure and in a lot of right. countries in Europe. So it, all of these things are coming together to they sort of come together and mean that it's it's just really hard to start our family. You know, today, the numbers are one in six. If you look at the data, it's probably going to be a lot more. And there are some scientists who say, this is a bit of an extreme view, but there are some scientists who say that by 2045, there won't be a single baby born that has not had some kind of intervention or, or assistance, reproductive technology assistance. Wow, so, 20,
0: that's 23 years time. That's a big exactly.
1: cool. so I Not re- When
0: I When I, when I well, after our pre-show call, I went off and we went off and did some research. And, you know, some of the things that I found, which was sort of, Shocked me were that there are 23 countries expecting their populations to halve by, you know, 2100. So in, you know, 75 years, their populations will have halved,
1: and that creates a whole set of other problems. It's nuts. It's completely yeah. insane. You know, I think yeah. when we look at fertility, human fertility and fecundity, and we, we look at population. I really think that this is the climate crisis of 30 years ago. The data tracks in one direction. The picture is terrifying and we're not solving it. We're not talking about it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's at the moment, it's, it's sort of like, if any, it, it's so, but I think from what I read and it's so Elon Musk is a big, like he's a, he's a big, he's a big pusher of, of, he's a big sort of, I would say he's not a backer of the global fertility crisis. That's the wrong way to say it, but he talks about it quite a bit. He does. He talks about it and um you know there are a few other people and it's it's just hard you can see it's very hard to get people it's like almost like a cognitive dissonance which is on the one hand we're being told that the world's overpopulated and that there are too many people and you know we see visual representations of that all the time traffic jams waiting lists so on and so forth and then there's this other group of people trying to kind of wave the flag and be like guys we've got a huge problem coming down the tracks we don't have enough people and you're like Well that that that's just such an amount of cognitive dissonance that I just don't think people can get their heads around it.
1: And I think it's tough, you know, we're so good at humans on focusing on what's in front of us.
0: But problems
1: that are 30, 40, 50 years down the track, they're harder to to start solving now. And also the solution is make more humans. Well, not every that's not an obvious solution for everyone.
0: No (laughs) we can't always do that. Well, and also a lot of the time there's a you know there's a disincentivization to to do that because it gets in the way of careers and it gets in the way of you know and and the the data around female education and female careers obviously tracks with women having babies later in life and so on and so forth so it's sort of like well there's only one group of people that can have babies on the planet you know like sort of so what are we really saying here like yeah. You know, you you, you have to you, you have to potentially put certain things on hold because the world needs you. And I don't know, that's a that's that's a tough sell.
1: It's a real tough sell, and it's such a multifactorial problem. You know, we just put uh, parental leave policies in place for the company. And you can imagine right. it's a startup, and we are we're not a huge company. We're let's see, seven women and okay. George, right. um, I'm George. Okay. and uh, I'm George and George. And when you're putting in place your your sort of parental leave policies, it's fascinating how difficult it was to get that right and to get the right balance of how do we create, you know, sort of fair policies that are in the best interest of maternal health, infant health, mm-hmm. parental health more broadly. It, it's, it's a really interesting problem. It's so wide-ranging. We've got to start talking about the the, the systems, you know, population-wide, country-wide systems to support people to conceive. It's not cheap yeah. having a family.
0: No. It really it's isn't. It's yeah. not. It's really <laughs> not. So, um yeah, and it's it sort of, there's obviously going to be some reasons out there that we may not know about as to why there's been a massive increase in hormonal-related, um you know, conditions, both on the male and the female side, and, you know, sperm counts reducing. Those will be, I guess there's something environmental or in what we're eating or they'll figure that out but there's still there still needs to be some kind I don't know some kind of intervention to incentivize people to to have more children if that's the issue that we need to solve right because like there's sort of the way that society is at the moment is sort of moving away from a a child focused one and in a family focused one into more of I guess like a achievement materialistic type of sort of you know experiential one I don't
1: know certainly in some cultures
0: data point of one opinion of one so
1: um. no but you're absolutely right certainly in some cultures we've moved away from the traditional sort of family structures and and it's like I said it's such a complex problem you know this is why I, I love being in this sector so much because anytime there's a data point or stat or an idea and you just pull the thread you unravel these sort of Hopeful systemic issues if you keep pulling hard enough. Yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. It's a really cool place to be.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so look, let's try and sort of, you know, bring it back up in terms of positivity for the last (laughs) few minutes of the show. So obviously, you know, starting your own company is hard. Starting your own company in health tech, I think, is hard, pretty, pretty hard. Um, and so how do you sort of stay on your on your mission and keep the team motivated? And you know, how how have you managed to do that over the last few years?
1: Yeah, I think it, this is a lesson that I learned a little bit the hard way. Um, I feel like I learned a lot of my lessons the hard way. Um, uh,
0: I think otherwise it wouldn't be lessons.
1: <laughs> exactly. Otherwise you wouldn't learn it. Yeah. Um, we So for us, because we're not on the market yet um, and we are still building the hardware, sometimes we can get very focused on, on doing that and we forget to connect with the user and the user is our yeah. why. And so okay. what I would say is one of the things that really keeps me on mission and keeps the team on mission is connecting with users, having calls with users, speaking to people who are going on this journey. And, you know, a lot of people, it's funny, we've grown the team quite quickly. And when I hire someone, one of the things we talk about is, do they care about fertility? And for me, yeah. it that actually almost doesn't matter so much. The question for me is, do they care about humans? Because I Mm -hmm. guarantee you, you get five minutes into your first user call with someone who's on the journey to conceive and you will care deeply about fertility. You will be obsessed with solving this problem because the pain is palpable. Mm It's it's really awful. And, And so I think really staying on mission for us is all about connecting to the user. As long as we stay close to the people on this journey, we know that we will build the right thing.
0: And what is it that they're saying about what you're trying to do, you know, like like what kind of nuggets or what kind of gems have you taken from those conversations that you use in those tough times to kind of, you know, get everybody through and be like, no, 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 what we are doing matters. So it doesn't matter how long it takes us. but This actually matters to people
1: yeah I can give you an example we yeah, ran um, We ran a human factor study in a simulated environment, so we brought people in to use the device on a medical model and you watch through sort of one way glass and and there were a couple of design things that needed to be changed and a couple of things on the instruction that people maybe didn't understand, or there were some sort of misuse cases. And what was fascinating to me is even if someone looked at the device and in the instructions and they said, I, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on, or it wasn't mm-hmm. the best experience, they'd put it down and go, I know 10 people who need this right now. I wish wow. this had been around. I wish that this had been around when I was trying god I wish this had existed 10 years ago when is it getting to market so even when we bring people into a research environment to look at prototypes of this yeah they say when is this coming and it is yeah it's it makes us want to go faster
0: yeah Yeah, I know it's It's hard right I mean it's 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 like when you find somebody that really likes what you're doing and you've got to be like oh not quite yet yeah, exactly. so, so if, if anyone listening is interested where can they go to find out more information i i think you've got somewhere where people can register even for like to to, to stay in touch or to even we be involved do. in some of these studies right
1: for sure we do so you can go to our website which is beafertility.com b-e-a um, on the website there's uh, space for you to register, we're starting to sort of communicate a little bit more regularly. You can sign up to the lab, which is where we do user research sessions. We'll often communicate through social feeds. So we're starting to talk about preconception health a little bit and all of the things that you can do at home on this journey. So if you register, you'll sort of get a little bit of content around things within your control on a journey that often feels like it isn't.
0: Yeah. Okay. And presumably there's quite a good feedback, quite a good pickup to those things. I imagine people in this space are just really no, desperate desperate's the wrong word, that's more of a negative, but just very, very, very interested in anything that's happening.
1: They're motivated, you know, when they right. want to that's start. Your one, family. That's, what,
0: that's what I was looking for. Motivated. that's <laughs> it, motivated.
1: Yeah, people, people when they want to start their family, they want to start their family, you know, it's time. And uh and so yeah, we we have a lot of motivated people that we speak to. It's it's one of the best parts about our job
0: cool well Tess thank you very much for coming on the show um, it was great to have you on great to learn about fertility really appreciate you coming on really appreciate the energy um, and thank, thank you, you for em- having me no problem and thank you to everyone for listening if you are interested head to Bayerfertility.com um, and you can find more or you can you can find the links on on the shows um on the show's social social media pages Um, But yeah, thanks for coming in, Tess. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week.
1: Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everybody.
2: your touch on nights when I'm hollow. I know you cross the bridge that I